Now, how to sift accurate information from misinformation is becoming one of the challenges of this crisis, isn't it? And here's one example. We looked at Google Trends earlier. One of the top searches was ibuprofen, and that's connected to a statement from two days back where the French health ministry suggested that that anti-inflammatory painkiller could worsen the effects of the coronavirus. The story has been very heavily shared. So in the UK has this WhatsApp message Conspiracy theories and misinformation have been a major feature of the COVID-19 pandemic, such as the example highlighted in the previous clip about the safety of ibuprofen during COVID-19 infection. That particular myth was quickly busted after NICE had a full review of the evidence behind it, but other myths are a bit harder to shift. In this episode of the PJ Pod, we'll take a look at some of the common myths surrounding the treatment of acute pain and give you the full facts. Fundamentally, pain is both a sensory and emotional experience, and it has to have that emotional bit in, otherwise it's not unpleasant. And if it's not unpleasant, it's not classed as pain. So pain always has an emotional component in, although in our culture we try to belittle that or suggest people are mad if it's there. I think this is where I always had a fascination about pain management because it really boils down to who you have in front of you what the patient is suffering, feeling and exuding in terms of pain management rather than a reading. You know, and you can have readings in asthma and, and cardiovascular disease and they're all very useful and they all help. But in pain management, I don't have the same type of reading to base my recommendations on, which for me keeps the fascination alive around how pain is so subjective that it actually means that you have a different experience and a different approach at each and every patient that you see. I'm Caitlin Killen, the Assistant Clinical Editor for the PJ, and with me I have our regular Hercule Poirot Executive Editor, Nigel Prates, who has spoken to a number of experts to get to the bottom of common misconceptions in the treatment of acute pain. I have. Still working on that Belgian accent though. No need to demonstrate, thank you. So we're talking about acute pain today, but what exactly is that? So the British Pain Society's definition is that acute pain lasts less than three months or is pain relating to soft tissue damage. If pain lasts longer than that, then it would be classified as chronic pain and the management of that kind of pain would be very different. So you'd assume that everyone knows how to treat acute pain, right? You might think that, but as in any other area of medicine, the evidence keeps moving on and what you learned at university might not be correct anymore. In fact, we did a survey of 1,000 pharmacists in 2019, and although that showed high confidence amongst most of them when it came to recommending treatment with OTC analgesics, when we questioned them more closely on the evidence, we did find some misconceptions around how pain medications should be used. So lots of confidence, but potentially the wrong advice being given to patients? I guess that's quite worrying given that lots of people must be walking into pharmacies all the time with migraines, period pain or other conditions. Indeed, and that's why we decided to tackle this subject on the pod today. So shall we crack on with the first myth? Yeah, let's. So this one actually relates to the BBC News clip we played at the beginning and is a pretty easy one to refute. The idea that paracetamol is safer than ibuprofen. You know, that's a very interesting question because I think the reputation of ibuprofen has changed over time, especially when I first went into pain management. Ibuprofen was seen as something that you would use with caution. This is Yusuf Ahmad, who is Chief Pharmacist at Frimley ICS and co-chair of the UK CPA Pain Committee. 
you would use with caution in particular with patients that had a asthma background or that had a GI background but equally whenever you are using it you would have to give advice such as take it with food to avoid any GI side effects and I think that reputation was in place for a long period of time but as we learn more about different medications such as ibuprofen and as we see more use more routine use more often in the community in hospital and in other settings we get more educated in how ibuprofen behaves in patients so the rhetoric of ibuprofen being a dangerous drug i think has gone as a medication that can be used with great efficacy when used to tackle the pain that it's been targeted for that's great but is paracetamol safer Well, the best evidence we have on this is a Cochrane review published in 2015. It looked at 21 different OTC preparations for acute pain, such as paracetamol on its own, fast-acting formulations of ibuprofen, ibuprofen plus caffeine, ibuprofen plus paracetamol, etc, etc. So it found that for most of these, the proportion of participants experiencing an adverse event was generally not different from placebo except in the case of aspirin, 1,000 milligrams, and only barely for ibuprofen, 200 milligrams, plus caffeine, 100 milligrams. Interestingly, for ibuprofen plus paracetamol, the adverse event rates were actually lower than placebo, so you can feel pretty confident taking that. Here's the other expert I interviewed, pain consultant Dominic Aldington, who is clinical lead for pain management in the Hampshire Hospital's NHS Trusts. We're discussing acute pain here, which is meant to be the short-term pain. So two or three days of ibuprofen or or paracetamol, it's unlikely to make a difference one way or the other. The difference might come on if you decide to take these tablets every day for months and months and months, and then perhaps there's a difference. But most of the studies have been done in the short-term, the truly short acute pain models. So we seem to have pretty comprehensively cleared that up. What's next? Well, some surveys show that around three quarters of pharmacists believe that all non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, or NSAIDs, should be taken with food. But this is what Yusuf had to say. Yeah, so again, it's something which has started within my career in pain management. The ibuprofen had to be taken with food. That was a, almost a necessity. Uh, and many of the medicines information sources that we routinely use in the world of pharmacy, such as the BNF, such as the SPC, clearly indicated that too. And equally, pharmaceutical companies that produce ibuprofen had that in their patient information leaflets. But again, on, on the back of the Cochrane Review and various other research that has come out, we've seen that the use of ibuprofen doesn't need to be associated with food. So what would be the actual advice? Well, our experts were pretty clear that NSAIDs could just be taken with a glass of water, just like any other pill. Or a cup of lukewarm tea? That's how I take my pills. Funnily enough, that brings me nicely to our next myth, whether caffeine-containing preparations can exacerbate headaches. Here's what our two experts thought about that. I can say personally my wife suffers from migraines and she she's quite apt with detailing what can trigger a migraine or a headache. And some patients know that too. Uh, And equally, some patients may say caffeine may be the product that triggers them. But it isn't a universal application. 
caffeine-containing medicines do not routinely trigger migraines or headaches and shouldn't be purposely avoided in patients with that background. We know that most headaches and most over-the-counter analgesics will work better with uh, caffeine. People do have caffeine-related headaches, as they do with any analgesic. We know that. But again, we're focusing here on acute pain. So we're, we're not looking at someone who's had six months of headaches and they get worse and worse and worse and worse. So in our house, the answer to any acute pain problem is one ibuprofen, 200 milligrams, one paracetamol, 500 milligrams, and a double espresso. Hitting it from all angles. That's it, yes. If you're not going to try and smack it on the head hard and fast, why even start? I am totally on board with that. Sounds like how I treat most of my hangovers. So good advice for acute pain and hangovers. Anyway, we're moving on to our next myth, which is about opioids. There's a perception that these drugs could result in a relapse in people with a history of misuse. However, according to our experts, the situation is actually far more complex. Opiates is a personal passion of mine. Uh, it's one of the things I've dealt with quite often in pain management, and particularly around either poor prescribing or escalation of opiates when that isn't been the case, or looking at those that have perhaps a complex comorbidity and complex history, which includes misuse. Um, I found that a history of misuse does not negate the opportunity to use opiates. I think the history of misuse give you an inkling in terms of what treatments could work, what couldn't work, and also give you an inkling of what safety netting that needs to be imprinted into your recommendations for these patients but more importantly it shows that patients can still effectively use a whole host of therapies including opiates the crucial part here being the appropriate control of the patient's symptoms what does yusuf mean by safety netting well this is what you had to say about that so the safety net element basically for me means that have I informed the, the patient clearly of symptoms of misuse? Have I given them the right signposting of therapy groups, patient groups, charities and other primary care and community services that are on offer for them if they are in that susceptible bubble of being uh, having a history of misuse? So have I given them the right intel of where to seek help? And lastly, have I given them the opportunity to come back to me? Because it's quite powerful when you say to a patient, reach out to me if you have any problems, because it allows them to come back to you if they have any other questions or if they feel that they are not coping with the prescribed regimen that you've offered to them. To be honest, that sounds like good practice for any patient consultation there. People with a documented history of misuse probably know more about the dangers of taking opioids than their prescriber does. True. And Dominic had another point that I think it's worth including. Just because people have a history of misuse doesn't mean they are still misusing. It may put them higher at risk and we may need to have a greater awareness, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't provide people with um, analgesia. I think the other point is that people who are on background doses of um, medication, whether that's methadone or 
buprenorphine or something. We shouldn't stop them having more opioids if they need them for analgesia. Uh, we need to have an awareness of what could happen, but we also need to realise that if they're already on this background dose, it's not going to be providing analgesia because they will have got used to it. And so they do need more, and they may need even more than, than normal. An excellent point. Right, what do we have for the big finale? Okay, a controversial one for our last myth. Are women able to tolerate more pain than men? As a man, I think this is definitely a myth. Well, I certainly won't comment on that, but what did our experts have to say? Here's yourself. Based on some of the research in this space, women have a higher threshold of pain experiences, but are actually more likely, when compared to men, to report pain after the same procedure. So what do we mean by that? So just to unpick that a little bit, both men and women, when they undergo, say, a surgical procedure, they are likely to report pain in a similar fashion after that surgical procedure. But there is some discussion that actually women may report pain in a slightly different descriptor. So it may not be as severe, it may be more diffuse, it may be, again, slightly different to their male counterparts. But the crucial part here is, I think, the sensation of pain exists similarly between men and women after, say, that surgical procedure, but the description are, are, are different. I really want to dodge this, I'm afraid to say, because I don't think it gets us anywhere. I don't see it as a helpful question one way or the other. I think there are all sorts of debates. Do they uh, look for help more often? Is, it, is one thing. Do they think maybe the boys get the pain and then use some aberrant behaviour, such as alcohol and violence or something, whereas the ladies are much smarter and think, oh, well, I better go and speak to someone about this. So I really don't know. I know there are all sorts of experiments done, but I don't think it gets the clinician any further. I think, I think there's all sorts of clever science that can be done and um, people can have lovely conversations about it. But as a clinician talking to a person with pain, I can't see it makes any difference. And we kind of, we move into that danger of forgetting the emotional component is normal. And we start thinking that the emotional component of a pain is an abnormal thing, which it isn't. It's entirely normal. Otherwise, the pain wouldn't be unpleasant. So I think this is a really interesting discussion to have. It just shows that we're all different and process pain differently and that we should treat pain with a focus on the individual. Yeah, and it was it was something that came out in my discussions with both Yusuf and Dominic. But when you stick your fingers in the car door, the message going from your crushed finger up to your brain, the stimulus, as you say, is we refer to as nociception. So it's, it's the, the electrical signal. It only becomes pain when it gets to that bit between your ears. And the pain you experience is very dependent on all sorts of other things going on. And as they say, without wanting to get in the weeds too much, um, pain's an emergent phenomenon. So even if we knew what all the little components were and we could put them all together, we still wouldn't actually understand how much pain you've got. 
it's dependent on previous experiences, your expectation, you know. I mean, you know, a rugby player who breaks their finger in a match just gets it strapped to the next one and they carry on playing their game. But a concert pianist who breaks his finger is in a whole world of trouble. I also think pain is very complex and I'll say to my pharmacy colleagues is to really take your time with patients that are suffering pain because that extra minute or two that you give them uh, means the world to them because quite often the understanding of pain from a patient perspective is quite hard as a healthcare professional and requires a bit more effort than say managing the, the, a patient's asthma or a patient's blood pressure. So the extra few minutes you can give your patients just to get more clarity in their pain management and how they suffer means a lot to them. And I would say that as, a, as an ask to my pharmacy colleagues across the, the patch. I think that's a nice place to end this episode. Thank you, Nigel. And of course, thank you to Yusuf and Dominic for your expertise. I think we've covered a lot of ground here, but what if anyone listening wants to find out more about the treatment of acute pain? We'll put some links to the Cochrane Review and our learning resources on acute pain in the show notes. Great. And also a big thank you to our sponsor for this episode, Bracket. That's it for today on the PJ Pod. Please do follow us on whatever podcast platform you use and let us know what you thought of this episode on social media using the hashtag PJPod. Until next time, bye-bye. Until next time. (laughs) 